During this episode, I bring on Carrie Cabanero, which is one of the most decorated women in the financial industry. You probably heard her amazing story on the Michael Kitts' podcast or seen her on your TV screen. If you go to her website, CarrieCabanero.com, you will find pages and pages of press coverage telling her story how she went from an abusive relationship to ranked one of the top 100 financial planners by Investopedia. The purpose of this episode was to pull the curtain back on all the accolades and meet Carrie Carbonero, the person. Yes, she's a huge advocate for women. Yes, she was earning $500,000 per year at age 30. But I want to show you, the listener, that you can do it too. Financial planning may not be your passion, but with the great wealth transfer coming in 2030, Carrie is telling men and women, you better be prepared because it is estimated that two thirds of that money is going to be in the hands of women. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, you don't want to be a non-believer, do you? Welcome to Financial Advisors Say the Darndest Things, where we teach you how to be rich in spirit and righteous in action. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest is an award-winning certified financial planner, professional with over 25 years of experience. She's a tireless advocate for women in the financial industry and is passionate about increasing financial literacy and empowering women to overcome any financial challenge they face. Before joining ACM Wealth, she was vice president, head of office at Goldman Sachs. At United Capital, she founded and served as head of women's leadership. She was a managing director, partner, voice of the women, FinLife coach, managing director, most valuable player, and her financial planning practice was a diamond office winner. She is the author of the best-selling wealth management book for women, The Money Queen's Guide, for women who want to build wealth and banish fear. And actually, she's currently working on her second book. Well, ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Carrie Carbonero. How are you doing? Thank you, Elijah Juan, for having me. Yes, yes, I'm very excited. Um, obviously, I've done tons and tons and tons of research on you, <laughs> hours and <laughs> hours of material, and I've enjoyed every bit of it from the articles that you're writing to the TV that you're on and the segments that you give. I just think that you are a wealth of knowledge, and we are blessed to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and share with you. Perfect, perfect. Well, let's dive right in. For anyone who is just tuning in, we actually did a pre-presentation on Carrie Carbonero, where we go over her website, her speaking engagements, her consultations, her awards, and also her website, where you can go to CarrieCarbonero.com and see all the wonderful things that she's doing all in one place. So if you're tempted, go ahead, open up a new window, go check her out. Mm -hmm. um, we'll make sure that we enjoy those aspects as well. So Miss Carrie, let's start at the very, very beginning. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, um, came from a money family. My dad was a banker. My mom was a CPA. Um, she actually went back to school later on in life, um, but originally she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and so I am from an Italian, uh, uh, Irish background, you know, family, super important, big family. Um, but definitely the money part of my upbringing was a really big deal because my dad and I bonded over money rather than over 
um, like sports <laughs> because I, you know, as a woman, I guess I, I it's kind of interesting now, there's so many amazing women uh, role models in sports, but you know, back in the day for me, this is a lot of years ago, there was like Nadia Comaneci and maybe uh, somebody else in gymnastics. So we didn't have a lot of female role models in sports. So I didn't really, you know, I was a cheerleader and kick line and dancing and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't do the, I, I didn't do the sports like my dad would have probably wanted me to do because he was an athlete. He was a football player and, a, and, and played golf. So we bonded over, over money. And so we did a lot of things together. My dad and I were super close and, you know, he taught me about money at a very early age. So I just thought it was normal that everybody knew about personal finance and, you know, did not know that that was something that was not taught and that most people didn't know it. And it was just for me, it was literally second nature. And so I didn't even know I could build a career doing it because I didn't even know it was a career. You know, this is like so long ago. And this is, you know, think about it. The CFP is only, what are we, 30, 40 years old? I mean, like super, long, not a long time, not an old profession. And so you know, when I first grew up, that's, I just was around money all the time. And, you know, my, my dad would take me to take your daughter to work day in the seventies before there was a take your daughter to work day. So I, I, you know, I just thought again, this is normal. This is what, this is what you do. Uh, and being around the banking system and money and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, my dad was a um, a senior vice president, J.P. Morgan Chase, and he was, he used to run all the branches in um, Manhattan and Queens and Long Island and Brooklyn. And so I used to, everywhere I would go, I would always, you know, stop at a branch and, you know, get to know people. And, you know, just, it was just an incredible experience growing up, being around, you know, that, that aspect. Um, and I really was very, very fortunate when I was in my, in my early early youth and then when I we moved to Long Island when I was like a teenage no no I'm sorry not a teenager I was like 10 and so then I grew up in Long Island um and which is also a great place to grow up fantastic it was like the 80s um and then I when college came I went away to college and I remember my dad this is very fresh in my brain because I just had this conversation because I was just out in my old college this past weekend and my dad said to me, you can go to a state school and I will pay for it 100% or you can go to a private school and you will have to take out student loans. And, you know, this is before the internet, before Google. And I was like, loans, you know, like debt, like what are you talking about? And then right. he was told me what it was and like you couldn't Google it and like you had to like find out what it actually was. So you read it in a book or find out from my father. And I said, why would anybody want to do that? Why would anybody want to be in debt or take out loans? I'm like, it's totally not worth it to me. And so he was like, good choice. And so I went to a state school in um, and I could have I got into the private schools and the, and the Ivy League schools, but I didn't want to take out the debt. So I never did. And so and I remember, you know, everybody that I went to school with all a lot of them took out the student loans and the day that everybody got the checks it was like huge parties all over downtown people were out buying beer and partying and like woohoo free money and i was like wow i'm not part of this i feel like i'm missing out on something and obviously as you know i was not but there's always time to pay the piper but i was i was lucky at least at that at that moment in my life
Well, I think that's very important. I think one element I don't want people to miss is you being in an environment where you can absorb financial information without it being tough. And I think a lot of people do that. They put themselves in these financial situations where it's almost like school. You sit at a desk, you read a book, you watch a YouTube video, and you study, 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 and it starts to hurt as opposed to just being in the environment. I had a yeah. podcast with Kevin Thompson, and we talked about just being around finance is going to help you develop some of these kind of uh, intuitions around money, right? How to manage money, how to spend money, looking at your mortgage, looking at your auto loans, looking at your insurance. But if you never look at it, you don't develop it. And then we can fall backwards. Right. Well, and not only that, for me, I feel like it was kind of like osmosis because it was like part of what we did. Like we had... We had an online banking terminal in our house in the 80s. It was Pronto. It was the first online banking. It was it was actually like a, a, a system that that um, Chemical Bank had back in the day, which is now JP Morgan Chase. And it was like the original online banking where we would log on and look on our, our TV screen with this Pronto and we would see the bills and my father would teach me how to use it. Um, you know, and he was always, you know, doing all the right things with money and he taught about credit and how to get credit and the, the five C's of credit and how important it was and how important to have a great credit score was. So again, this is what he did for a living. So I was getting it through osmosis. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about those refund checks in college, because we talked about early development and we're going to talk about money scripts coming up. Obviously, you have a great money script or a great history around money that, you know, according to your dad and your relationship, you're able to bond over money. But you see this, right? We see people with an influx of money that don't know how to manage money. So they go out and they party, they go out and do things that are self-gratifying, that instant gratification mm -hmm. when they see those assets in their hand. And we don't just see that as college students. So if you're listening right now, this is not a behavior of an 18 year old or a 19 year old. This transcends all the way to 30, 40s and 50s if we don't correct right. some of these money scripts. So with your father in mind, what drives you further into the financial industry? So I just always knew that I was good with money. So not only was I good with money, but I wanted to help other people be good with money. And so that was where my initial foray into finance, you know, my first job out of college was actually at JP Morgan Chase in the bank, in the banking system, working with clients one on one in like the select and the private banking side of the business. So I already knew right from the right from the beginning, like right from day one, you know, this is this is where I want to be. I want to be in finance. I want to do what my dad did and I want to do it even more and better and, you know, make him proud you know, and all, all of that stuff. So I knew this is always where I wanted to be, except that I really didn't know that being a financial advisor was even a profession back then. So I started, I graduated college in 1990. So obviously I'm probably much older than you. And there wasn't really a big, um, there wasn't a lot of financial planners back then. You know, it was, again, we didn't even, we just, they didn't, the board exam wasn't even a board exam. It was like, Back then it was like actual modules. It wasn't even one big test. So things changed a lot over time. And I just knew that this is where I wanted to be always. Yes. And I think that's great. I think we share that because I used to work for JP Morgan as well as a relationship banker and then moved up to a financial advisor. And you learn some of this terminology and you actually see some of these money habits and these trends of individuals, whether they're over withdrawing and also positive habits as well. Some people who save a lot, you know, sometimes you see people with savings accounts with huge balances. I saw a guy come in 
he had roughly $3 million in a savings account. And I was like, oh, you did great in savings. My financial planner's like, or my financial advisor at the time is like, that's not good. He's, he's sitting on all this cash. Inflation is eating it up, but he's right. afraid to, you know, to multiply his money and, and to take that next step. So we have to still educate those who are just taught to earn money, spend money and save money. There's more yeah. things that you can do with money. And that's where you come in is where right. we start talking about these different strategies. So I want to jump to strategy here. So we got a little background of your money scripts, what you're doing, but I want to jump to an article that you had on Rethink 65. And I think this is really great because you have this story about a couple, a charitable wife, happy life, right? They had $2 million with 1.4 million capital gains. So instead of just taking, you know, approximately the $329,000 tax it, you actually break this down on how you were able to leverage a financial vehicle to save her money. Can you talk a little bit more about that situation? Sure, it was a charitable remainder trust. And what happened was my client had all these gains in, in this portfolio and his wife is, like I said, very, very charitably inclined. And I had said to them, you know, what if you could um, translate this and put this, take this, get this out of your state, um, have no taxable consequences, get a check back from the government and give to charity at the same time. So we make it a win, win, win. And they said, let's see what you got. And so we put it together and I ran the numbers for them. And, you know, we went back and forth and we did it. And it was one of the best things I think ever for them. Um, it's still going obviously to this day because it's it's gonna go till they pass because it's a charitable remainder trust. So all that will go to charity while, it, while it's growing. So it's, you know, it's probably doubled since the time we put it in. And so, you know, that's more money that the charity is going to get. And they also get annual distributions from this trust. And then they got that big check back from the government. So it honestly, for me, it was just making it a win, 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 win. And, you know, I love when, the, sorry, the government doesn't get their taxes. <laughs> charity gets money and my clients get money back. So it was really, you know, the only one that lose, uh, lost in that transaction was the government. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think we're all okay with that. And I think we all want to keep more money in our pockets. And to our listeners out there, I want you to understand this is that she didn't, and it's not about the investment. Yes, it is a type of vehicle, but it's the strategy behind it. There's a charitable remainder trust and there's a charitable lead trust. And you have to, right. you have to distinguish between the two, but having these strategies in place can save you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So people are like, well, yeah. my financial advisor is charging me 10,000 or 15, whatever the, the charge may be, but look how much she saved in this one piece of advice. And I think that's exactly. what I want people to listen is that it's not about the upfront cost, it's about the back end as well. Right. Because right. I, I think society has it backwards and you can agree with me or disagree, but when we get a car, right? What is the first thing they say? How much do you want to pay per month? <laughs> right, right. Like, how much can you afford? It's like, it's not about how much you can afford up front. It's about how much you're going to pay over the life of that car. And is exactly. it going to be worth it? But same thing with your estate. It's not about how much money you earn. It's how much do you keep and how much can you pass on? So let's, right. let's jump to the, the next um, scenario that um, you brought up here. You said that there was a couple that actually came in and they were disagreeing. And I think we see that a lot right? Mm -hmm. You know, the husband is, is lying. The, the wife is lying. They're going behind each other's back. How mm -hmm. do you deal with that type of scenario as a financial planner? 
It's very difficult. Um, it is very difficult. It is probably the most difficult thing that we have to do. Um, and usually that couple is not most likely not going to make it right um, there in my when when couples cannot communicate with each other, um, they're hopefully already seeing a therapist. And if not, I would recommend one. Um, I feel like I am one in a lot of cases, but I'm actually not a trained therapist. So, you know, it's it also is very difficult to try to mediate the situation when, you know, two or two people are talking and they're just not not hearing each other. And it's going like this. The communication is just going like that. So I try to be in the middle all the time and try to, you know, get them on the same page. But I can tell you sometimes it is literally impossible and sometimes I fail and I feel really terrible about it. It's one of my um, things that I just, I just can't, sometimes you just can't make it work, but it's the same thing even if I was a therapist. Therapists sometimes can't make it work between couples and they're, that's, that's what they're trained to do to make the communication go through. And so it just makes our job so much more difficult when the clients are not on the same page and they're not, they don't have a strong marriage. I love it. It's not about the money. It's not about if you could make them a profit in the financial markets. It's about how do we mend this relationship so you have a, a healthier relationship, not even just with your partner, but with money itself. And one thing right. that you said in an article, which I really love, he says, I, I think I could handle them better today than you did back then, but I no longer would want them as clients because they did not value my advice and were paying me not to take it. And I want to... Yeah to expound on that just a little bit, because there's one piece that I heard that jumped out at me. They did not value my advice. And that's kind of indicative of their relationship as well. They're not taking each other's advice or even open to the other person's opinion. So they're not gonna be open up to yours. So no matter how well-trained you are, 25 years of experience, you're not gonna get the value. So can you speak to the importance of accepting the advice of those who know better? Yeah, so it's so interesting because I always feel like for me, my my best clients are people who not only want the advice, but will accept the advice, right? So I to me, that makes a client a fantastic client because there are clients, even to this day, I have who pay me, who I give great advice to, and they just don't take it. You know that Alanis Morissette song, it's the good advice that you just didn't take. Right. You know, there's a, there's a, just, you know what? I don't know what it is. There's just some people that will, you could give them amazing advice till the cows come home and they're not gonna listen to you. So, you know, it, it gets incredibly frustrating. And I feel like, again, that's another thing where, you know, I lose sleep over cause I'm, I'm failing because I'm not getting through to these people but there's nothing I can do. I, I can just keep giving the good advice and hoping that someday they're gonna accept it. And, and I don't know, I don't have all the answers because I don't, what do you do in that situation? Well, I think you do what you do, right? You keep <laughs> pushing, right? You are a strong advocate for women and wealth. And you tell a, a beautiful story of a woman who came into your office and it was a couple and you're talking to the husband and she pulls out a magazine. Now, how mm -hmm. did that make you feel in that moment when she pulled out a magazine? Awful awful she is completely unengaged and i have to stop the meeting i'm having the conversation with the husband and trying to have the conversation with her and she is completely off off the grid does not want to be here does not care would rather read my magazine and i stop the meeting and say what can we do to bring you back to this to this conversation you know and i honestly don't know if everybody else would have done that other people may have just ignored her and let her read the magazine 
but I was not going to, I was not going to do it. That's, that's not, a, not on my watch. Not on your watch. It almost feels like when Jesus went into the temple and, and knocked over the tables, like, listen, <laughs> y'all are not <laughs> listening to me. I need to grab your attention. And I don't think that you grabbed it out of malice, but out of the fact that you write extensively on the great wealth transfer that's occurring in 2030. So two thirds of that wealth is going to be transferred into women's hands. And right. you are urging them to take control of their finances now so they can be prepared. So can you talk a little bit more about the great wealth yes. transfer and why your purpose of educating women financially is vital and keeps you getting up in the morning? Yes, it literally is my life's purpose. So, um, and it's interesting because if you go back, so 2030, we've been hearing these stats for a lot of years now, 2030, two thirds of the women are gonna control uh, sorry, two thirds of the nation's wealth will be in the hands of women. Right now we're at 33% of the nation's wealth is in the hands of women. So we're going, we're doubling it over the next three, seven, sorry, seven years, right? So this is really a big deal. And all the stats are, are true that this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna inherit it. They're making it themselves. Um, people are passing away. People are getting divorced. Whatever it is, that's what's happening. So the problem is, that this industry is, and I apologize, um, but this is the truth. It's been set up by men for men. So women are not, women are an afterthought in this industry. They are not, this industry was not created for women. If you think about it, if you go back historically, and I I'm actually trying to write this in my next book, the history of women in the industry and the history of credit, for example. So credit in the United States was not in the form of women. Women were not able to get their own credit cards and their own mortgages until 1976. So yeah, an act was passed in 1976 for women to be able to do that. So before that, think about that, all those years before that. And it's interesting, I was with a history professor this weekend and she told me, well, back in the middle ages, women were allowed to have their own credit. And I'm like, really? Because I didn't know that. So the United States, here we are, this modern society and, and women don't have the right to vote till later and the, and the right for credit till, till the 70s. So I think that's a big deal. And I think that that's a big reason why women are not interested in money. They don't want to talk about money. They're, they're uncomfortable about it. They don't feel like they have enough knowledge. They don't feel like they have the right questions to ask. They don't know who to trust. They don't hire somebody until they get into a point where they're at kind of like a crossroads, either a death, a disability, a divorce, something bad happens. And that's when they usually think, oh my gosh, I might need some help. So then that puts them in a vulnerable state where there's a lot of people in the industry that might be looking to take advantage of a woman. Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of it for you, honey. Don't worry, everything's fine. You know, that stuff drives me crazy. And then you 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 look at the numbers and there's, you know, 20% of women in our industry and 80% men. So the odds are that somebody eight out of 10 are gonna be with a man and not saying that all men are gonna take advantage of women. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I feel like as a woman, as a female advocate for women, I wanna make sure that that doesn't happen. And I also wanna make sure that women are set up so that they don't have to be in that, in that situation where when they're in some sort of crisis, this is when they decide to hire someone. Yeah, I think that's normal for men and women, right? Because even in the financial industry, we see that we get an influx of clients based on life events. Mm -hmm. So that life event could be going to school or having a baby, getting married, getting divorced, 
preparing for retirement, things of that nature. And we always encourage people to get an advisor when it's not like that. So it's not right. so hard on us. <laughs> and then also uh, they can get the benefits. So let's talk about women and maybe some of those insecurities like, OK, I, we haven't been in finance since 1976. All this is really new. It's it's within, within the last 40 years or so. Like, how do we transfer some of the skills that we have now? And what are some skills that we have now that are easily transferable into finance to make it a little bit easier transition? Yeah. So I think that women are, you know, really great planners, right? So women plan vacations and weddings and parties and really, really great. I mean, and, and also fantastic multitaskers. So women have all these great skills. All of that can be translated into financial planning, you know, so, you know, if you're going to be planning anything, you should be planning your retirement. You should be planning your financial future. You should be planning for being alone because guess what? Even if you have a spouse, 90% of women are going to be alone at one point in their lives. So even if everything's fantastic, it doesn't matter. You still 90% of women are going to be alone at some point. So, you know, I, I also feel like a lot of times um, I've, I've done this with some young women and even young women, and think that somebody else is going to take care of this money thing for them. I did. A, I, I went to a very wealthy school in Connecticut, and I did this segment with them talking about women and money. And the 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 young women who were like, you know, ninth grade to twelfth grade. And I said, okay, guys, how many of you think that you know somebody else is going to take care of this money thing for you? And almost every hand went up. So it's still there. And this is, so this is the problem. So I feel like it's so many things. It's, it's, um, sociology, psychology, um, environment, um, everything, TV, um, everything that's going on. It just, it's still not that women can do this on their, by their own, by themselves. And so that's my biggest goal in life is to make it so that women, you know, want to take care of everything themselves and don't think that somebody else is going to take care of it for them. Right. And I think it has to do with almost like your money script, right? You were around your dad. He was around finances and you said you learned almost through osmosis. So that means that in the household, women aren't being taught about finances at a great extent. And I think it's a responsibility of, of men in those households as well to invite women into those areas of expertise, just as I feel that women should invite young boys into the kitchen to learn how to cook and clean. My right. dad used to always tell me I that agree. too. He says, hey, you may not always have a wife or a spouse. You need to learn how to cook, you know how to clean, know how to do your laundry, because if you are by yourself, you know, you're going to be lost. So I think one point I also want to make too, is that one, breaking the cycle, you know, somebody has to step up. So I love you being an advocate to say, I'll be willing to teach the women out there everything that you need to know. I'll be willing to educate you um, or I have resources and things that uh, that nature that right. you can leverage. Now, I want to talk about this for a second. I want our listeners to know that there's a pain at every income level, but there's also a solution at each one as well. Because I think a lot of investors have this idea that if they have a million dollars or two million dollars in the bank they're going to have a happy retirement can you talk about some of the different pains that you may have seen as some of those individuals with higher net worth that still permeates all levels oh yeah it doesn't matter how much you have um you could have 10 million dollars um net worth and you still could be unhappy or think that you're going to run out of money or feel feel poor 
You know, it's all a matter of your money scripts and your perspective and your relationship with money. I mean, I've seen people who have half a million dollars net worth and think they're rich. I've seen people with $10 million who think that they're poor. It completely, completely depends on who you are as a person. I think that that's part of my job with my clients is to tell them you're okay. You're going to be okay. You know, you can't spend all this money. Everything's going to be, you know, you're fine. And also just go through that with them. And, you know, I've had, I had one client who was with me a very long time and she would always say, I feel like I'm going to run out of money. And all she would do every single time I met with her was grow her net worth, grow her net worth, grow her net worth, grow her net worth. So every single time I would give her, this is your new number. This is your new net worth. This is your new net worth. You cannot over, you cannot outlive your money. And so that's the, that's the message I would give her every time. And she would be like, okay, now I can sleep. I, now I feel better. Now I feel okay. But it really is, it's such an individual thing. Um, it doesn't matter what your income level is. It doesn't matter what your asset level is. You know, it's interesting because I feel like as a CFP, I, I do work with the wealthier side of the population. So I, I like to say, like, I think I, I see the 1%. I don't necessarily see the other 99, but I try to get my hands into the other 99 with my family, with friends, with, um, you know, church people, with whatever, you know, trying to get with uh, people that I'm trying to see what is happening with people living paycheck to paycheck. So I, all those people, they need the help more than the one percenters. However, they're, they're not, they're not reaching out and, and getting the help, you know, because they don't they think that they don't need it or they think that they don't want it or they think they can't afford it. But I don't, I don't think financial planning is just for the wealthy. I think it's for everyone. I agree. I think it is for everyone, but maybe there is a disconnect between financial advisors and a general public because we're under this perception that like you said, all oh, the financial advisor would never want to talk to me. I've had people say, oh, I have a million dollars. You would never want to take me on as a client. I was like, yes, I would. So, <laughs> so those type of conversations are need to be had. I think in, in our society, that's one, but then also relatability. And that's what financial advisors say. The darndest things is all about. It's about relating to financial advisors and taking down some of the 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 glow that comes off of us right like oh this guy he's been over there for over a decade she's been in for 25 years she knows way more than me there's no way that i can approach this so can you talk about your journey it wasn't always straight up to the top i mean people can really get lost in your awards right you have a daddy as a banker you had a great financial education you went to a great school you have a great practice and now you're living your life but those are the highlights that's a sports center can you kind of tell us a little bit about your journey and your relatability as a financial advisor? Sure. So um, guess what? Uh, I made mistakes. And even with given all the fantastic upbringing and doing all the right things and making all the right moves with money, I still went down a bad path. So I love to share my story because it makes definitely makes people feel like, you know what? Everybody makes mistakes, right? So I married Mr. Wrong and I went down a very, very bad path where I, at one point I almost thought I was going to lose my practice. I was going to lose, I was bleeding cash. I was, I could not make cash fast enough for how much was going out the door. I was, I was in the red every month for my divorce took four years and I was in the red the entire four years. So I was pulling from my existing assets, I was pulling from my bank accounts, I was pulling from my Roth accounts, I was pulling from everything to just get 
through that through that time frame. I, and I literally could not make money fast enough. That's what I, I would say, because I remember one month, one month, I had an attorney bill of $30,000 wow. for one month. And I literally got it and I started crying when I looked at it. And the girl who gave it to me was like an assistant who probably made $20,000 a year. And I said, I said, is this more than you make in a year? I was like, which is mean to say, but I was so upset because she had no remorse for me. And she was like, here's your bill. And I'm like, I said, who can pay this? Right. Who can pay a $30,000 a month bill on top of everything else that you're making and, you know, paying mortgages. And I had two houses at the time and, and I had a rental. So I was paying three, three, three places plus everything else. So yeah, it was, it was not, not a good, good time of my life. But I did come out um, and then um, I also had another terrible time in my life. And I, when I got, when my company got bought um, by Goldman Sachs and I tried to get out of my contract from Goldman Sachs and that was not happening. And I was paying a thousand dollars an hour to an attorney. So hundreds of thousands of dollars to an attorney to try to get me out of my contract. She unsuccessfully did not get me out of my contract. So I paid all that money for nothing. Um, and then I tried to buy my business back and then they reneged on me. And I thought I was gonna walk away from the business again. So this was the second time I thought I was walking away from the business. Um, and I wound up having to quit, run out my non-compete and then start over again on the other side. So that just happened last year. Um, or maybe it was two years ago. I, I, it's kind of a blur at this point, but it was it was all related to COVID. And, and now, ironically, Goldman Sachs has just sold United Capital or the, the old United Capital to somebody else. So now everybody's going through some sort of um, stress right now to figure out what's what's happening and where they're going next. So I feel incredibly vindicated that I got out before all of that happened and that I was right about the whole thing. But that's another story, I guess. Right, right. So, so you went through some difficult times and you learned a lot of valuable lessons, obviously, through that time. What's the most valuable lesson that you learned during those turbulent times that you would pass on to a woman investor? So, yeah, it's about the long term, not about the short term, right? Because if I'm looking right in front of me right now and everything is a disaster, um, and everything, the sky is falling, I, I can't get out of my own way. If I'm looking in the future, way down the road, um, the sky is clear and sunny and bright and everything's fantastic. So I just, and I always say that also when it comes to investing too, because if you think about it, you can look at the short term and you can look at the short term um, volatility of, oh my God, I'm losing so much money. Or you can look at the long term of there's never been a 10 year period where anybody's lost money in the stock market in a balanced portfolio ever in history. So if you've got 10 years or more, you're going to make money. Amen. Amen. And we should all have a long-term perspective, right? Because you can get in as early as 18, earlier with uniform transfer to minors account. That's a whole other conversation. Right. All the way up to when you retire, you know, 68 and 70 years. That's a long time horizon that you're going to see a lot of things. And I actually see that too with some of my older investors. They're like, I've seen this before. Or, you know, <laughs> the government right. shutdowns. I, I get that. Oh, the feds raised rates again. Okay. I, I know how to play that one. But they, they planned their life, right? So um, this question is actually for, like I said before, the, the women investors that are out they're listening to you and they go okay carrie's great she's been through a lot of tough situations just like me 
how do I change my perspective from not wanting to deal with finances to embracing some of those difficult situations? So I feel like um, every time I talk about this, I feel like I can motivate people to, to take action because it's your life. It's you, you are worth it, right? This is your life, your future. The more money you have, the more choices you have to make a better life for yourself. Who would not want the best life possible? And the only way to get it is to make sure that you have this finance piece sorted out, right? Because if you have this, if you have the finance piece sorted out, you can sort out your, your, um, you can sort out health. You can take care of personal relationships. You can take care of yourself. You can do vacations. You can spend time with friends and family. You can do all the great things that you want in your life if you have the finance piece straightened out. And so, if you and if you work with somebody who's a, who's an advocate for you, it's not like you have to know everything. That's the other thing I find that a lot of women are like, well, I don't know everything, so I'm not doing anything. I see that a lot. I see a lot of inaction or um, analysis paralysis because they want to they want to like review everything. So I feel like you really need to get with somebody who you trust and then let them guide you. Let them let them be there for you. Let them do it with you. You know, you don't want somebody to just tell you what to do. You want somebody to do it with you. One thing you say yes. is objective advice. And that's what I love mm -hmm. too, right? Because even in your situation, you said in the very beginning that you married Mr. Wrong, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't that person you want to really build that relationship. And, and obviously we, we love family, but at the same time, you encourage objective opinions. And that's what a financial planner would do. It says, hey, how can I look at this from a bird's eye view and help both of you guide into the right direction? So can you speak to maybe building a good uh, social structure in order to blossom into the investor that women should be? So I believe in, I'm like a social networker slash connector. Um, I, it, it's funny. I wish we had social media when I was growing up because if I did, I would still be connected with my you know, kindergarten and, and, and nursery school friends, because that's who I am. Like I'm still friends with every single person that I ever went to school with that I can get back in touch with. So I am, I, first of all, I love people, right? So I think in order to build a network, you really have to be interested in people, right? You can't just fake it. I think you, you have to really, really want to help people and want to connect people and want to, you know, build on each other and help each other out in any way, shape or form, right? So I spend so much of my time connecting with people, going to lunch, going to dinner, go, doing my phone calls, doing my texts, doing my doing my uh, social media, connecting every which way I can. You know, you can reach me a hundred different ways and I'll respond any, any way, any, any, any one of those ways. So um, also as a woman, they say the more socially connected you are, the longer and better your, your life will be. And so there's a ton of studies on that, that you know, you'll have so much satisfaction in your life, especially as women get older, to having that strong network of, of women and other people around them. Um, but I, my network is, is, I have a stronger female network than I do a male network. Um, just because I'm a female and I just have stronger connections on the, on the female side. And, and I think it's easier. 
Yeah, I have a question too, a follow-up question here. How can men or even husbands or boyfriends support women in this transition, right? Because that's going so, to be a so harsh- Good question. Very good question. So um, my husband, um, who is amazing, um, supports me 150% on anything I want to do. So if I want to go on a weekend with the girls, if I want to go on a trip with the girls for two weeks, if I want to go uh, on an evening with the girls, if I, anything I want to do, 100% supportive. Uh, the, if the husband says, you know, oh, well, you're not going to be there for me and you're not going to take care of me and who's going to take care of this? And no, you don't want that. You want them to say, go take care of yourself. Have a great time. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I need to, I need to practice that. I need to practice. That. <laughs> so, so my question now is that we, we have what men could do to support women. We know that women need to get the financial education necessary to take those next steps to take control of their finances. What are a few tips, some, some key takeaways they can do right now to change their finances? What are, are the top three things you could think of off the top of your head that someone yes. can do right now and see that drastic change? Okay, three things. One, make sure you pay off your credit cards in full at the end of the month. Do not carry balances. Credit cards are not free money. If you are doing that, you're you're hurting yourself because that money should be going to you rather than carrying a balance as you go on. So that's number one. Number two, um, know your numbers, right? So what's your budget? What's coming in and what's going out every month? I always say a budget is not a four-letter word like diet. It is just what's coming in, what's going out. I'm not telling you not to spend. You just need to know what is coming in and what's going out. And also know your net worth, which is what is what is your net worth and is it growing every single year? That is your assets minus your liabilities equals your net worth. You should know that number and that number should be growing every single year. And if it's not, something's wrong. That's awesome. So Carrie, you know, as, as we kind of approach the end of the show, I just want to ask a, a couple of series of simple questions, but they're going to be pretty deep. And I, I want you to really dig deep for these, these answers. Okay. You've been through a lot, positive and negative through your mm -hmm. life. And for those who want to hear the full story, a healthy advisor from wealthmanagement.com actually had a podcast with her on there. So go check that out. I'll have a link um, in the description so you can listen to her full story. But I want to figure out through those tough times, through those four years of being negative, I think advisors can, can relate to this as well and clients alike. Being marrying Mr. Wrong, um, getting your company sold to a company that didn't align with your values, how did you maintain the strength to carry on during those tough times? Let me tell you, it was very, very difficult. Both of those scenarios, I needed to go for professional help to a therapist. Um, both of those times, as a matter of fact, those are the only times in my life that I actually needed a professional therapist. I could not do it. I could not do it alone. Um, I needed, I needed professional help, um, because I was questioning who I was as a person and my value and my, and my self-worth was in the toilet. Um, and actually I think Goldman put my self-worth in the toilet more than even my ex-husband did because it, he was only one person. Goldman was an entire institution and also I was losing my identity as a financial advisor. So I, I pretty much felt like I lost everything. Um, all I had was, I mean, I still had my friends and family and my husband and everything else, but I, I lost everything professionally. So it was incredibly difficult. Um, I think if I did not 
get professional help, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I had my my ex-husband at one point had said to me, you know, if if you get attorneys involved, I'm going to have you commit suicide. And that was his goal. His goal was to have me commit suicide. So the fact that I didn't and that I was strong enough not to um, is pretty good. So I, I will pat myself on the back for that little tiny bit that I actually got through it. And it didn't, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you know what, you have to learn and grow from those horrible experiences in your life because it makes you who you are and it makes you resilient. Right, and I think that's the key. We, we talked a little bit before the show, we talked about raising your pain threshold. And there's a saying I like to say on the show on and off is that with hardship comes ease. And what that means is through those tough times, we learn how to cope and we learn how to deal with those emotional stressors that we're gonna have in life. But Carrie is very successful because she made it through. But the key thing here is that she developed a team. And, and that's what I'm getting from you is that you sought professional help. You didn't try to do it on your own. You didn't lay in bed and say, okay, I'm just going to grit my teeth and try to make it work. I'm going to get out there and get professional help. And I think that's what we want to talk about here on the show is that as women investors, you're going to be inheriting a lot of, oh, I'm sorry, it's echoing again. Can you turn it down a little bit? Sure. As women investors, you're going to invest, a, you're going to be receiving a large inflow of cash coming up and trying to manage it on your own could be a scary thought. It could be overwhelming. Family could come out of the woodwork saying that so-and-so owed me money. This is the bill. And, you know, you should invest your money this way and support my business. And I have a food truck that I want you to invest in. And all these different ideas are going to come your way, but seeking professional help can help mitigate some of that. But as we talked about in this episode, don't do it during the life transfer. When someone passes in your life, you are supposed to be grieving. You are not supposed to be looking at bills. You're not supposed to be worried about insurance. You're not supposed to be worried about who the beneficiaries are or trying to select your executor or anything else like that. You are supposed to be settled grieving over the person that you lost and that you had your connection with. So seeing a financial planner early, seeking professional help, can help you during those tough times. Is it going to be rough? Yes. Is it going to be hard to get over? Yes. We're not saying if you have a financial plan, you won't feel any pain at all. But our job is to help mitigate some of your pain and take some of that work off of your shoulders. You know, you shouldn't have to learn about IRAs. You shouldn't have to work, worry about how a beneficiary IRA works when you're grieving. Because sometimes it's even hard to see their name on the envelope, let alone determine how you're going to take care of this taxable you know, this, this capital gain that you may be getting, depending if you're the spouse or the child or whatever it may be. So, so Ms. Carey, um, as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your book briefly. Um, you've already written one book, um, but you also have another one in the works. Can you tell us why you developed that book and why women should get it? Sure. Well, I don't have it. I don't even have the second one yet, but it is finished. Um, so I actually should have had this book done a very, very long time ago. Um, I actually started working on it probably a year or so after my first book came out, which was a very long time ago. Um, and so then when Goldman, when the Goldman thing happened, I could not write for, for four years. I was completely blocked for four years because I was, again, dealing with, you know, a very poor self-worth or uh, where where I was. I just I just didn't have the, the fortitude to write during that time, which ironically, I should have had all the time to write, but I just I just couldn't do it. And then as soon as I got my freedom back, 
I was able to write like that. And so it, it flew out of me like super fast. But I, I'm trying to now bring in some history of why women, women, what I was talking about earlier with the, you know, 1976, but why, why is the financial service industry so, um, I guess, skewed towards men versus women? And I, I really want to do a lot of history more. I want to dig more on that topic because there's nothing that's been done on it. I've done a lot of research and there's nothing that exists. So I, I, I'm going back to the drawing board to add that whole component to the book right now as we speak. But um, I'm talking about the history of the profession and the history of women in the profession and then why women are you know, looked upon as this is not female friendly industry. And I want to solve that issue. That's awesome. So if they can't you know, get in touch with you or, you know, or, or, or link up with you, they can always get your book get all those valuable lessons about the history because you have to know your history. I tell people that all the mm -hmm. time. If you don't know your history, you're bound to what? Repeat it. Repeat it. Exactly. 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 So, uh, Ms. Carrie, as we wrap up, is there anything that you want to say? Um, where can they find you? Where can they connect with you at? Sure. I'm super easy to find on, on social media. I'm the only Carrie Cobinaro on the planet, at least to my knowledge. And so I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and even TikTok now and Twitter. Um, CarrieCarbonaro.com is my is my website and my book is The Money Queen's Guide for Women Who Want to Build Wealth and Banish Fear. And I am really, really, really easy to get. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is it from us. I had a wonderful time with Carrie and I hope you did as well. I want you all to go check out her website. I feel truly blessed to have her on the show and I'm sure we're going to keep in contact and continue to spread her message to the world because it is one that needs to be heard. If you got this far and was like, you know what? I like Carrie. She really speaks <laughs> my language. Then I want you to reach out and schedule a consultation with her today. Don't wait. Our show is about highlighting those in the industry that are doing the right things. And Carrie is one of those advisors. To stay connected with us, be sure to join our mailing list excuse me, to receive future guest updates, links to discount codes, and free resources to help you manage your money responsibly. Once again, links will be in the description. Well, that is it for me. I am A.B. Ridgeway, and I'll see you on the other side of your blessing. Elijah Ridgeway is an investment advisor representative and owner of AB Ridgeway Wealth Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor which produces a podcast show and makes it available on his website and through other distribution channels. Elijah Ridgeway and any guests on the podcast are providing their own views and opinion are not necessarily the views and opinions of AB Ridgeway Wealth Management. Nothing on the podcast should be construed as solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any specific security. Investment advisory services are only provided to investors who become AB Ridgeway Wealth Management client pursuant to a written investment management agreement. Clients of AB Ridgeway Wealth Management may hold positions and securities discussed in the podcast. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Financial advisors say the Darnest Team podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for any investment decisions. Instead, please consult a financial advisor, accountant, attorney, and or conduct your own due diligence.